0: While the kids are being dismissed, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, We're continuing our study in this uh, great book of hope. Uh, Remember why it's a book of hope. Uh, Paul planted the church and then he was driven out of the city. And uh, he's going to talk about that in the passage this morning. And as he was driven out, he was so concerned about what was going to happen to the Thessalonians and their faith. And what we learn is when he left, they had no recourse but to turn to God's word. And so even in the absence of Paul and his leadership, uh, the Thessalonians were able to grow and develop uh, in their faith. And so this morning, uh, our theme is our greater hope in the word of God. Uh, a case can be made that there is no greater hope among all the ordinary means of grace than the Scriptures. In many ways, nothing else works apart from the truth of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Prayer really has no power unless those prayers are salt and peppered with Scripture. Mission has no hope of fruitfulness unless it is seasoned with salt through the Word of God. Our views have no foundation of truth Unless they're grounded in the Word of God. Our worship has no purpose unless it is grounded in the Word of God. This table has absolutely no meaning unless it is grounded in the Word of God. Billy Graham, before he died, was interviewed by People magazine. And he was asked if you had to live your life all over again, would you do anything differently? He had an answer. He said, if I had to live my life all over again, I would have preached less and read and studied Scripture more. Billy Graham said that. Where does that leave the rest of us? And it's a message we desperately need to hear in our day, an emphasis that we need to really give weight to because the trends are not looking good never before in American history has there been so much skepticism concerning the word of God and never before in American history has the word of God been read less by American people Barner Research, Lifeway, the American Bible Society have done surveys and research. And they've discovered that only one out of seven, that's about 14% of Americans, read the Bible on a daily basis. And the trends are getting worse. Young adults, age 22 to 34, over a third of them say they never read the Bible. How are we to know how to live apart from God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word? If you were banished on a deserted island, no way off, no cell service, you could have one thing with you. Or you were put into prison. You could take one thing with you. What would it be? For Paul, for the Thessalonians, it would have been the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the ground of our hope. In Romans 15, Paul says that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. In this passage that's very brief, Paul emphasizes the reliability and the trustworthiness and the timeless relevance of Scripture. May we have ears to hear. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians 2, Verses 13 to 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Has come upon them at last. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Folks, this is God's Word. He gave it to us because He loves us. And He wants us to know that we have sure, reliable, timeless truths that come straight from his heart by his sovereign work. Let's pray. God, would you give us a hunger for Scripture this morning? And for those here who are wrestling with their view of Scripture, we pray that today will be a great encouragement and, yes, even challenge. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So Paul commends the Thessalonians for receiving Paul's words and the message that he teaches from Scripture, not as the words of mere men, but as the very Word of God. There are three descriptive truths about Scripture in this passage that give us hope. First of all, Place your hope in the divinely inspired Word of God. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> when you received the Word of God, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Paul is emphasizing God, our Creator, the Eternal One, as the origin and the author and the compiler and the preserver of of all scripture, he says the same thing in 2nd Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture, every single word, theologians call that verbal plenary, which means all or whole, verbal plenary inspiration. It's talking, of course, about the Old Testament. But it's talking about the New Testament as well because Jesus predicted that his disciples and apostles will be led by the Spirit into all the truth. In Second Peter 3, Peter, talking about people who distort the Old Testament, say they do the same thing with Paul's letters and he calls Paul's letters Scripture the same way that he calls the Old Testament Scripture. That that word inspired means God breathed. Now, we don't believe in what's called a dictation theory of inspiration. We don't believe that Paul and all the writers of the Bible were sitting down at a desk and suddenly God spoke audibly. Paul, write this. Paul. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle of Christ Jesus. Jesus by the will of God, by the will of God, to the church of the Thessalonians, to the church of the... No. What we believe is an eternal, sovereign, omnipotent God who works in all of our lives by His sovereign providence. You believe that. You believe God's in control. So the same belief applies to the writers of Scripture. God was sovereignly orchestrating and ordaining His will in His heart to be communicated through their writings. And His providence was so at work in that process so that what we have, what has been compiled, and what is preserved is the very Word of God. Look, this this really shouldn't be a struggle. If we believe that God is an eternal being that never had a beginning, and if we believe, as we do, that God created everything we see out of nothing, then why would we think that it would be difficult that the Lord's arm would be too short to make sure that what we have in our hands is the very word of God. If God is God, having confidence that he has the ability and the kindness and the compassion and the love to get us his word precisely as he desired, it shouldn't really be any surprise. But notice what Paul does in verse 13. He begins by giving thanks to God. That when the Thessalonians accepted the Word, they accepted it not as the words of men, but the Word of God. So what does that say? That says that ultimately, even though Scripture attests to itself in the Old and New Testaments, that it is the very Word of God, for a person to really receive that and embrace that and believe that requires a special work of grace by the Spirit in that person's heart. So if you are struggling to embrace the inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of Scripture, the first thing you need to do is pray. Pray for grace. Because only God ultimately can convince you of that. Having said that, however, you can also use your mind and do some research. For instance, if you are struggling with the reliability and trustworthiness of scripture, let me recommend a book to you. The author is F. F. Bruce and the book, it's very small, it's easy to read, it's called The New Testament Documents Are They Reliable? You see, it used to be that conservative Bible scholars We're constantly on the defensive. We're constantly attacked when it came to the reliability, the inerrancy, the inspiration of Scripture. Those times have changed. Now, there still are liberals who teach that the Bible is man's word about God, that it's full of mistakes, And as you read, hopefully it becomes God's Word to you subjectively. You need to realize that for liberal theologians and teachers to say that, one of two things are true. Either they're really poor scholars, and they're allowing their own presuppositions to get in the way of the facts. Or secondly they are downright evil and dishonest. The evidence for the reliability of the Scriptures is beyond any book's evidence that has ever been written. Literature scholars take certain works of literature to be completely accurate concerning the author. Let's say, for example, Homer's famous work, Iliad and Odyssey. No scholar of literature debates whether that book as we have it is accurate. Let the, yet the fact of the matter is we have many hundreds of times more copies and manuscripts of a variety of dates and all over a geographic area so that we can be many, 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 many more times confident about the reliability of the Scriptures. Let me give you an example. Liberals used to try to take conservatives to task when it came to the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a very important book, right? Isaiah has prophecies about the virgin birth. Isaiah has prophecies about the divinity of Christ, the coming Messiah, the Son of God, by giving him divine names. The book of Isaiah talks about Christ's substitutionary atonement that Messiah would be pierced and crucified for our sins, down to the detail that even in his death, his grave would be the grave of a rich man. And of course, the liberals said, well, you Christians, you're such a sorry bunch. You just put your brains on the shelf. You have no intellect at all. And the reason they said that was because our most recent manuscript of Isaiah was dated 900 A.D., 900 years after the life of Christ. So they said, it's crazy for you to think this is prophecy. A whole bunch of people got together and changed the book of Isaiah, and they wrote in those prophecies so that Christians would think that they have a foundation for their faith. Of course, we had the faith argument that we believe the Bible's God's word. But we didn't have any other hard evidence. Well, that all changed in 1946. In 1946, in some caves near the Dead Sea in a place called Qumran, they found an entire scroll of the whole book of Isaiah. It was dated, conservatively, 100 B.C. So in one discovery, a gap of a thousand years was filled. The scroll of Isaiah from Qumran, 100 B.C., was compared with the latest manuscript that we had, 900 A.D., and apart from spelling differences, like we would spell behavior O-R at the end, and the Brits would spell it O-U-R, besides those changes, it was word for word exact. Now again, at one level, it doesn't matter. Because God's Word calls us to believe that the Scriptures are inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. But it's not a blind leap of faith into the dark. It's a step of faith, a reasonable step of faith, into the light. Archaeological evidence. Not one archaeological find has ever contradicted the Bible not one liberals for years had said the Bible's wrong about this place the Bible's wrong about that place that place never existed and time after time after time contemporary archaeological digs are discovering places that archaeologists never knew existed except that the Bible said they existed. And not one find has contradicted what the Bible says. You couldn't have any more confidence that the book that we have is the very Word of God. How kind Of the Lord. How compassionate. He could have simply just told us. And for many, many, many centuries of believers, all they had was the Bible's testimony to itself. And that's really all we need. And yet, God has also kindly given us evidence. Now, here's the thing it's one thing to believe that the Bible is inspired. It's one thing to believe that the Bible is without mistake. It's one thing to believe that it's authoritative. But here's the kicker. Are we reading it? You see, there's a sense pragmatically in which even if we rationally believe the Bible is the Word of God, what good is it doing if we're not reading it? if we're not exposing ourselves to it, if we're not listening to it, if we're not involved in small groups that are studying it and reading it, if we're not in a discipleship group that's challenging us constantly and encouraging us to read it, to memorize it, to learn it, to study it, it really doesn't matter if we believe the Bible's inspired, if we don't read it. May we be people who place our hope in the divinely inspired Word of God. Secondly, place your hope in the divinely powerful Word of God. Verse 13, you accepted it as the Word of God which is at work in you believers. The Bible is unique among all books, not only because it's inspired, but because it is supernatural. In Hebrews, the author says that the Word of God is living and active And sharper than any two edged sword. It has the power to pierce the heart, to expose and reveal the thoughts and intentions of every human soul. No other book has that. Books about the Bible don't have that. Books about anything else don't have that. The Bible is unique in that it has power. To change lives. It has power to impact us. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter writes that God's divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. And and specifically, Peter goes on to say what his divine power has granted us. And what his divine power has granted us are very great, precious And magnificent promises that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature. As we read the word of God, it has the power to conform us to the very image of God which is revealed in Christ. Now this power of the word, this supernatural capacity of scripture to change our lives... Paul builds a case for in verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> I want you to follow the argument of Paul here. First of all, he says the Word of God is at work. How do we know that? Well, look at the four. Those two four words are very important. The Word is at work. How do I know that? For you became imitators of the churches of God in Judea. So one of the ways that Paul says we know the Word of God is supernatural is that it does a work in us that enables us to become imitators of other followers of Christ who are simply becoming imitators of Christ by the power of the Word. But then he has another four. How do we know the Word of God is at work in us and is making us imitators? Look at the surprising answer. For you embraced and endured suffering. For you suffered The same things from your own countrymen as they did for the Jews. One of the evidences of the supernatural power of the Word of God is that as we read it and hear it and study it and share it, we are enabled and empowered to endure suffering, to endure trial, to endure hardship. What are you struggling with today? How are you confused? What trials are you facing? What sufferings are you going through? We need to be in God's Word all the time, but especially in times of trial. Because God's Word has power to give us the capacity to endure and embrace suffering. Now, it goes way beyond suffering, God's word transforms our lives in every arena of life. You struggling with shame, God's word has the power to overcome that. You struggling with guilt, God's power, God's word has the power to enable you to overcome that. You struggling with addiction, God's word has the power to enable you to face that. And slowly but surely over a lifetime to deal with it. In Second <clears throat> Corinthians three sixteen, we read that God's word is inspired and profitable, useful, beneficial for teaching, for training, for rebuke, for transformation. Sometimes I'm asked, Bob, when you say inspired, I get it. God breathed. We talked about that in the first point. And I understand authoritative. We're going to deal with that in the third point. But, but what's infallible mean? Well, infallible means that God's word cannot fail to accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. Infallible means that when we expose ourselves to the word of God, it Cannot fail to do a supernatural work in us. That's the hope of the promise of the power of God's word. You need faith. Well, pray for it. But also there's something very practical. Romans ten, seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, and particularly and specifically, hearing. The word of Christ. You want to be transformed? Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. It has that power, it has that capacity, and to give you the inheritance among all those who were being sanctified. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, infallible. It shall accomplish what I purpose, infallible, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You can approach the Word of God with great hope, great confidence, that if you expose your heart to this book, it will accomplish the power of God in your life. That's why God gave it to us. Now, We can believe that. We can believe the Word of God has power. But what does that belief do as far as any good if we're not reading it, if we're not exposing ourselves to it, if we're not in groups that are sharing it with us, we're not talking about it as we walk, and as we sit, and as we eat, and as we do everything we do in life. John 8, 1, John eight thirty one to 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Do you see that? Jesus actually equates being a disciple with walking in his word. <clears throat> and if you do that, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You want to be free from guilt. You want to be free from shame. You want to progressively grow free from addiction. It is only going to happen as you expose your heart to the word of God. Because the word of God's alive. The word of God works. It works. It is at work in you believers. Jesus, in his high priestly prayers, he prayed for all of the ages of the saints that would follow He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You want to be changed? You want to be holy? You want to be godly? There's only one way. Only one way. Expose your heart to the truth. I'm not saying other means aren't helpful. You have addictions, you want to go to a counselor. But do not waste your time going to a counselor that's not a Christian. And do not go to a Christian counselor that doesn't use the Scriptures. There's lots we can learn, common grace in psychology, in the soul. But what's going to change your life is not counsel. What's going to change your life is the Word of God. We have more power at our fingertips that any world leader has at his or hers with a finger on the nuclear buttons. But what does it matter if we don't read it? Place your hope in the divinely inspired word of God. Place your hope in the divinely powerful word of God. Thirdly, place your hope in the divinely authoritative word of God. And this is a huge issue in our day. And I, I... I have to say sadly especially among our younger people but it's true of every era of life now Christians even want to pick and choose what parts of the Bible they're going to make authoritative in their lives well if it deals with Jesus it's going to be authoritative but it deals with sexuality well then no no, I'm just not going to believe it, or I'm not going to submit myself to it. Look at verse 13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. That Those words mean Paul thanks God and Paul commends the Thessalonians for submitting their whole hearts to the very word of God. Are you submitting your whole heart? Are you submitting all your thoughts to God's word? Let me ask you do, you, do you analyze your thoughts on a regular basis to see whether they're in line with Scripture? Part of submitting our whole hearts to the authority of the Word is, is to submit our emotions. Emotions are important. Christians should not ignore emotions. But emotions need to be submitted to the Word of God. See, there's lots of times that I feel things that aren't true. They're real feelings, but the feelings aren't in line with reality. And if my feelings, whatever they might be, are out of line with God's Word, then my feelings are tricking me. How about your longings and desires that's part of your heart? Are they submitted to the Word of God? How about your choices, your will? Is it submitted fully to the authority of God's Word? You know, the greatest question every single Christian needs to answer, if they're a Christian, they've already answered the largest question, that is, what am I going to do with Jesus of Nazareth? But if you're a Christian, the greatest question you need to answer is simply this. What's going to be my final authority in life? My own thoughts, my own reasonings, my own opinions, my past, culture, politicians, media outlets. What do you spend the most of your time listening to? Yourself? Politicians? Media outlets? Friends? Culture? Or Scripture? Can I just say this tenderly? I've never been more disappointed in the knowledge of Christians with respect to Scripture in my whole life. I say this tenderly and kindly, but I just don't care about your opinions. I mean, I do, but I don't. Because if your opinions aren't backed up, by the Word of God, I don't care about them because the only thing I care about is the Word of God. That is my authority and no one and nothing else. So we might win the battle on inspiration and we might win the battle on the supernatural power and efficacy of the Word of God to change lives. But if we refuse to submit our minds, our emotions, our desires, and our wills to the Word of God, then we've lost the war. Paul uses a negative example here to warn us about not submitting ourselves to the authority of Scripture, and he uses the Jews, the Jews of the Old Testament that had the Bible. They believed it was inspired. They trusted its power. And yet they killed the prophets because they didn't like what they said. And the prophets were true, and Israel was wrong. And then they killed Jesus. They were waiting for Messiah. But Jesus, Messiah, didn't fit their opinions about what Messiah should be like. So they killed him. And then Paul started preaching the gospel. And they didn't like what he said because he was saying that they were wrong. And so they drove him out. And then God says in this passage, wrath has come upon them at last. Now, God's not talking about the entire Jewish race. He's talking about the Jews who rejected the prophets and killed them, rejected Jesus and killed them, and drove Paul out. But the fact is, ultimately, that is the truth of everyone who fails to submit to the authority of God's word. And notice, Paul adds, anybody who refuses to submit to the authority of God's word displeases God and harms all humanity. See, this is no small thing to get confused About picking and choosing certain parts of God's Word to be authoritative in our lives. And I hope what this does is convicts us and reproves us and rebukes us of either our views of Scripture or our use of Scripture or our not reading Scripture. And it drives us afresh to our Savior, before whom we must desperately repent. For not holding his word in higher esteem. There's an old song that kids learn. The B-I-B-L-E. Oh, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. That is so simple. And it is so profound. Those of us who are parents of young children, you can provide for your child in every imaginable way. And if you are not teaching them the scriptures from infancy, you need to take a hard look at your parenting. Second Timothy 3.15, Paul says about Timothy, how from childhood, Literally, the Greek says from infancy you were acquainted with the sacred writings. Parents, grandparents, are you exposing your kids to the Word of God? Parents, grandparents, are you exposing yourself to the Word of God? Singles, single parents, unmarried, are you exposing yourself daily to the Word of God? Everything hangs or falls on the Word of God. And if all of it, every single word is not true, then how do you know any of it's true? People who want to pick and choose. If you're picking and choosing, how do you know what the Bible says about Jesus being the Savior of humanity? How do you know that's true? You don't. Everything hangs or falls on this book. There is no gospel apart from this book. This is truth. We don't even know this table has any power other than the fact that the Word of God tells us it does. But what good does it do to believe all this about the Word of God and not read it, not study it? This is all there is. The eternal God of the universe for all of time. This is all He's given us and all He's going to give us. That's it. That's it. In this, in this particular book, this particular version, there's a thousand pages. 1,042 to be exact. That's all there is. 1,042 pages. The God of the universe that wants us to understand him, ourselves, and our world, this is all he's given us. You can read this every single year, several times if you want to. So ask God for a heart that wants to. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and its, its testimony to itself. And thank you for the kindness that you've given us evidences about its trustworthiness and relevance. God, may we be a people that love your word with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bless us now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.